This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Consciousness Unveiled, Fred's Realization, recorded March 29, 2006, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I just want to say a few words of introduction. <coughs> Fred is one of our longest veteran practitioners. When did you first join the Center? Uh, 92. 92. So 92 to 95 is what, 13 years? Wow, that's synchronistic. <clears throat> Last fall, uh, during our fall retreat, uh, Fred came to see me about, about halfway through the retreat, maybe one day longer, and uh, he started reporting something and it was kind of garbled. I didn't quite know what he was talking about at first. And I started talking to him back. It wasn't a normal report, you know, the normal thing. Well, I'm having some trouble with wandering mind or I'm having trouble with bliss or something like that. Uh, and then he said, no, no, wait a minute. And then he started explaining to me what happened. And what I first initially read was he had a very clear insight into the non-existence of the self. And this is a very profound insight to have on a spiritual path, but it is not full enlightenment. It's uh, really important, but it's the sort of the negative side of the coin, and there are two sides to the coin. And the way I sometimes have expressed this uh, in the past is the story of Cinder in the closet. So I retold the story of Cinder in the closet to Fred. He'd heard it before, but just to remind him. And I said, look, this is like this cat I have, Cinder. And when Cinder was very young, Jennifer trapped her. She was feral. She was wild. And so we brought her into the house. And of course, she would hide in all the places she could hide. And even after she became a little bit more domesticated, she loved to still go and hide, especially at night. And she would climb into this closet we had. This was a very little tiny apartment over on Nixon Street. And our closet was jammed with all sorts of stuff and all sorts of shelves and sweaters piled on them open, you know. And she would get in there and bury herself someplace. And very often we'd close the closet door and she'd be trapped in there all night. So we learned not to go to sleep until we'd really thoroughly checked out the closet to make sure she wasn't in there. So we would go in there and we'd feel all around all the places she could hide. And she's a little cat and she was a little kitten at this point. And if she wasn't, you know, we didn't find her in the closet, then you felt pretty safe to close the closet door. But you weren't absolutely certain. You weren't absolutely certain until you walked out into the living room and you saw her, I don't know, watching the fish in the fish tank. Oh, now you knew for sure. See, she wasn't in the closet. So this is the other side of discovering there is no self. You can have a very clear experience there is no self, but then what is there is the question. And the, the idea here, and it's a crude analogy, it doesn't really pertain to anything you can think of, but the idea is there's another shoe to drop. So one shoe drops, no self, and then there's another shoe to drop. Perhaps to put in a little bit more philosophical language, Dr. Wolf talked about this as the uh, the realization of a nothingness, but that is an absolute fullness. So that's, again, another example of what I mean by this. So we talked about this, and I said, you go out and see if the other shoe doesn't drop. See what happens here. So, you know, Fred's not a man of a lot of words. He went off, and then a day later, maybe two days later, I don't know, I looked up on the bulletin board there, at the Cloud Mountain bulletin board, where people leave you messages, and there was a message from me. And I opened it up, and it said, Cinder and I, we are through. Consciousness is the other shoe. <laughs> now, I have to point out a couple of things about this. My first thought is, Cinder isn't through. But you see, actually, that's not true. When you're enlightened, every being is enlightened. There's a, the famous Zen ox herding pictures. There are 10 pictures, and they represent 10 stages of the path. And the last picture is, after all this uh, fireworks, the guy says something like, I go down to the marketplace, and I go into the wine shop, and I buy some wine, and everybody I look at is enlightened. So, yes, that is true, Cinder. And not only Cinder, but everybody else, everything else. And then Cinder and I, we are through. 
that's an interesting uh, pun there. We are through the gate. The title of my book is Naked Through the Gate. Or we are through, like we're finished. It's done, finished. So it's very rich to have that Cinder and I, we are through. And then consciousness is the other shoe. <coughs> Seems to, and I'm certain it does at one level, refer back to what we had been talking about, that the other shoe has to drop. But shoe is shore without the R. And in Buddhism, they talk about, you know, going to the other shore and so forth. So you can read it as consciousness is the other shore. That's, you cross the ocean of samsara and you arrive at the other shore. So this is a very rich little haiku. And one of the things about enlightenment is that it sparks these uh, very personal expressions of it that you couldn't find in a book. And what a teacher listens for is that. It's not just the regurgitation of a teaching you've heard, but it's actually, it comes out in a, in a very fresh, new way. And so when I read that note, I said, aha, okay. Then, uh, however, over the years, I've learned to be a little cautious about these things because people do have genuine Gnostic flashes and even Gnostic episodes, but sometimes they don't stick. So we talked about it a little bit, as has become my custom, and uh, we decided to wait before announcing this to everybody. Usually it's, I don't know, four or five months. There's no time limit here. Uh, and then we talked about it again, and Fred said he was ready to come out of the closet. Uh, I warned him. The, the other thing I've become uh, cautious about, I said, you may not want to. You know, you may want to stay in there. Uh, but he's already been, you know, doing sort of crazy things, if you've noticed. Like he's, you know, singing wildly at our parties and sending out poems all over the place. And some of you have noticed some changes in him. So perhaps better to to bring it all out into the open before rumors start to spread he's getting Alzheimer's or something like that. <laughs> so, without further ado, I'm going to let Fred come up here and describe whatever he wants to say, and then uh, there'll be time, hopefully, for any questions. So here's the clock here. You know, we want to wrap up at about 9 o'clock, so you can okay. keep your eye on that. I realized I had... It's kind of mushroom. I didn't think I had much to say, but then it kind of mushroom as I was writing things down. But uh, before I start, I guess I it's kind of exciting. I mean, I've been on the other side of this several times. I've sit in the audience and I heard Todd's talk and and Andrea and Tom Kurska. It's always interesting what kind of thoughts and, and emotions arose, arose for me anyway. Kind of being inspired. Uh, oh man, I can do that. I can do what I want to do too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> to the other side of kind of being kind of jealous and envious. Geez, that should have been me. God damn. <laughs> what are they doing up there? So just anything that arises for you now and and afterwards. I mean, it's perfect. I mean, if it arises, it's got to be there. It's just nobody's there to uh, make it arise. Is all you got to realize. So I was gonna, actually I was going to start with a story of Saint Christopher. Now there's there's several reasons I was going to start with this. Well, actually I wrote a song about Saint Christopher that I was going to sing sing at the end of my talk here. So I needed to introduce him a little bit. But uh, also, you know, Joel would mention Saint Christopher every I don't know two or three years. He he mentioned this the uh, patron saint of travelers. I don't know why, but I always felt a little bit of an affinity towards St. Christopher. You know, I did some research, and kind of looking back now, I think it was because his persistence of his search was one thing. And another thing was um, his arrogance. This kind of uh, thing that I could relate to. And uh, oh, fear. Fear, too. And also, I did some research on the net. I mean, just looked up his story a little bit, and it seemed kind of rich, so I thought I might as well expand a little bit more than I thought I was going to do about St. Christopher. It seemed, seemed worthwhile anyway. I guess we'll we'll see what you all think. I thought he had been decanonized. You know, he was no longer a saint. At least the Wikipedia on the net said that's not true. He's just kind of downsized from... <laughs> he's like a holy helper now. Instead of... <laughs> but he's still a saint, but they, they took him off the calendar of saints because there was not enough proof of his actual existence. So now he's kind of like a mythical saint, which I think is kind of probably actually better. He's probably 
there's more uh, poetic license. I mean, I'm going to take some poetic license with this story here a little later. So anyway, he was kind of a large, real large character. He said he was like 18 feet tall in this legend. I don't know if that was maybe a little exaggeration, but he was a big fellow and uh, kind of a wicked-looking face, kind of a fierce countenance. And he was uh, serving this local king, and he got it into his mind that he would only serve the greatest king in the land. Again, that's probably his arrogance. He was a great guy, so he was only going to serve the greatest king. So he left this local king, went out searching, and uh, eventually wandered around and found this king who everybody said was the greatest king in the land. So he, uh, the king was happy to see this big guy, to put him into his service. So he started helping the king out whenever tasks he wanted him to do. And then one day a traveling minstrel came by and was singing a lot of songs. And he was singing a song about the devil. And the king makes the sign of the cross, whatever you make that. <laughs> and, uh, and he did that every time the, the devil was mentioned. And so Christopher was like, you know, what's going on here? You know, the king seemed a little bit frightened by it all. And so he questioned the king and uh, found out that the king was afraid that the devil might have some power over him. So he made this sign of the cross to protect himself. And so Christopher says, my hopes are dashed here. I thought I was serving the greatest king in the land, but now you're frightened of somebody. I must go off and search out the devil. He's greater than you. So off he went, searched out all around, and he finally, in the desert, found this uh, band of knights. And the leader was this fierce, evil-looking dude who said he was the devil. I'm the devil. He said, good question, Christopher. And so Christopher said, well, I'm here to be in your service. So he took him on, and they did some evil deeds, I suppose. <laughs> and they, uh, and one day they were going along the road, and there's this huge cross erected on the side of the road, and the devil just freaks out, and he takes the whole company the, the other direction. And Christopher is scratching his head now, but what the deal is with this cross? You know? <laughs> the king was making a cross, and here's the devil's frightened of the cross. So he questions the devil. He could have started worshiping the cross, but unfortunately the devil was a good teacher and told him there was, it was just a symbol. That, well, Jesus Christ was the, was the word there. The divine mystery might work better for most of us. But in the Catholic legends, Jesus Christ was the name he was given. It was a kind of a mystery. This guy wasn't in the lives. But uh, anyway, Christopher said, I'm going to go find out this mystery because that's greater than, than everything else. It's kind of a symbol of the duality there, the good and the evil. Kind of even following the great king and now this the devil, and neither one of them was satisfying for him. And there was something that was beyond those. So off he went, wandered around, asking everybody where he could find Jesus or the divine mystery. And uh, eventually, somebody directed him to this hermit that lived out in the desert. And so uh, the hermit started teaching him about Jesus, about God the divine mystery, whatever term you want to use, and taught him quite a while. And then he told Christopher, he said that he needed to do fasting. And Christopher said, no, I can't do that. can't do fasting. I don't know, maybe because he's such a big guy, he needed to eat, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, he couldn't do that. He said, give me something else. He said, okay, you have to wake up early and say a lot of prayers. And Christopher was like, no, can't do that <laughs> <laughs> and so the hermit, he's probably scratching his head about what to do with this big guy. But then he thought of this river. There's this river over there with really swift current, and uh, it's a really dangerous <laughs> dangerous place because it's kind of rather deep and where all these people crossed, and probably some people had drowned there. So he said, you know about this river, go there and help all the travelers who cross there. You're a big guy, and you hire everybody else, get a staff, and carry people across on your shoulders. And Christopher said, yeah. I'll do that. And the hermit said, I hope Jesus reveals himself to you as you do your service here. So off he goes and uh, builds himself a little cabin there by the river and lives lives there and willingly transports the travelers across. And then uh, one day this small child comes along and asks to be carried across. So he puts him on his shoulder and uh, starts to cross and all of a sudden the water's rising up and he's struggling it's the, the heaviest load he's ever carried like a lead weight 
and he's fearing for his life. He's sure he's going to be drowned. Now this is where I'm going to use my poetic license to uh, to fill in some details of the story a little bit. Because, I mean, the legend says that the child actually called to him three times before he found him and they started across. But I'm guessing that he probably actually had started, already started across three times with this child, or maybe 30 times, or maybe 300 times for some of us. And uh, he started across this river with the child, and he turned back out of fear every time. You know, he feared for his life, and he'd always turned back because it was just, just seemed like an impossible task. But also, it's, and I'm thinking that the child was always reassuring him as they were going across, that there's nothing to fear. Yeah. He's come across. The sweetness, not death, that resides on this journey. And I think Christopher, you know, was listening to him, and, but he always turned back. And he probably was growing kind of fond of the child. The child maybe would come around every couple of years. I mean, twice a year, maybe. Kind of like on a retreat. Or <laughs> and... Uh, and so finally, this last time that the child shows up, and Christopher is kind of the place where he knows he can't do it. And all of his strength, which is maybe his biggest attachment, was his great strength, he just can't do it. He knows he cannot get across the river with his child. But yet the child is encouraging to keep, come on, keep trying, everything's fine. And he loves the child so much that he's, he's just willing to try it. The child says, come on, just see what happens. So he says, okay, let's go. And so the well, place he's at, I would guess, is as he starts across, there's no hope and no fear at that point. There's no hope that he can make it across. He knows he can't make it across. But yet there's no fear. There's just He's just going to do it and see what happens. And so that's the point where actually the divine mystery or the Jesus or whatever is revealed to him. And the legend, it says that you know, they get across and... The child says that you've not only been carrying all the weight of the world, but also him who created the world. And so another way to say that was what uh, Christopher realized was that uh, what he has been searching for has been something he's been carrying with him all the time. And his true nature really is this child, is this God, is this consciousness, is the Tao, is uh, Buddha nature. And it manifests as the objects of the world, you know, all the world, the weight of the world, and also as a creator of the world, or just the awareness, awareness and the, and the objects of the world. And they aren't separate. And at that point, like, the child disappears. I mean, I mean, he has to disappear. He's not separate. There is no separate God or anything out there. It's just the reality. And uh, that's what he was. Thus endeth the story of St. Christopher. <laughs> Actually, it goes on a little bit. About kind of the, but it's a good place for us to stop. Um, so now I was just going to talk a little bit about kind of my life and path and some of those slight parallels with uh, the St. Christopher story. So I grew up in the Midwest, and uh, my family was quite religious, went to church every Sunday. So I was exposed to all the Protestant uh, kind of theology. But the religious scene never really grabbed me. And the older I got, the farther I drifted away from it. So I went to college and I came back and started farming with my dad. But I never really felt satisfied doing that either. It just I wasn't happy doing that. I, so I eventually got the urge to move on. and So then I went to psychology seemed like the thing I wanted to do. I read these books by Carl Rogers, and uh, so I had these huge dreams. I was going to be this great therapist like Carl Rogers and Rollo May. And psychology actually was quite a humbling experience because I, don't know, I guess I didn't have the communication skills or the uh, temperament to be a, a good therapist. I mean, I could kind of get by, but I was never very good at it. So it was a difficult for me, and it was, it was really humbling to kind of realize that. that all my dreams were, weren't going to be lived out there. So the next thing was kind of the uh, ecology movement. I got into that, and, and then specifically this eco-village in the Oregon forest down by Cottage Grove where I moved to. It was supposed to be this little eco-village there and no cars, and it sounded really idyllic. 
And I could see they had some problems before I moved there, but I was sure I would I'd be able to turn this place around and <laughs> I'd be the savior, so to speak, of this place. But that was like a huge shattering of my dream up there because it was quite quickly apparent that that wasn't going to happen. And uh, that, was, that was really kind of devastating there because I was kind of like, I didn't know what to do after that. I was like, religion hadn't worked for me, this occupation I'd chosen hadn't worked, and now this was trying to save the earth, and that hadn't worked. <laughs> I was kind of stymied. I didn't know what the hell to do. But fortunately, my neighbor was a longtime meditator, Paul Weintraub. He was coming to the center at that time, and he had a small meditation group he was doing. So I joined that, and that's actually where I met Gene, my Dharma brother Gene, and I went to that, and one thing led to another, and we eventually came up to the center, and I uh, heard Joel. It was just right away, I, I knew this was where I needed to be. It was like, I knew this was the place where I could find all these answers. And I'd never really been sure what I was searching for all this time. Sometimes I wasn't even sure I, I was searching, but all of a sudden I knew this was the place where I was going to find the answers. So they had, that was like, in 92, so I came there and just started doing the practices and, and saw my life kind of change in small but tangible ways, getting a little more freedom on the path. I mean, there is, like Joel always says, there is always some little bits of freedom long before enlightenment ever happens. And kind of my whole kind of life kind of started revolving around doing spiritual practice, and I actually went back to being a therapist for a while. So I wasn't very good at it, but it didn't bother me so much. <laughs> and uh, so, and I'd always loved retreats. That was always the, my highlight of my life, I guess, was going on retreats. And I don't know, I probably went on 25, 30 retreats or so. And then had some profound and not so profound insights and, and a little bit of bliss here and there. So I was never, never was a person who had a whole lot of bliss, but there's little, little bits and pieces. So now we'll cut to the chase of this last falls retreat. The retreat was a uh, fire in the heart, the path of devotion. But anyway, it was trying to elicit our love for the divine and eventually let go of that. See what, see what happened. That's a capsule. Very short version. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it was like Sunday night. It was the first Sunday night we were there, like three days into the retreat. And it's usually the time when I'm just kind of starting to relax and uh, kind of let go of the world and kind of deepen the practice. But all of a sudden I'm feeling disillusioned by it all. And I think part of it was Joel gave us kind of a foreshadowing of, you know, we're kind of eliciting all these strong emotions and and he gave us a foreshadowing that, you know, at the end of this time there, we're, we're going to have to let go of the divine or let go of this love we're feeling, but don't worry about that now. <laughs> but I guess I'd been on so many retreats, and I knew where this was all going to end up. I mean, it was, was going to be the same dead end that it always had been for me. <laughs> <laughs> And it was all of a sudden I I, mean, I couldn't do the practice anymore. There was no reason to do this again. It was just why go through it again? I guess. I mean, I thought about leaving the retreat, but that kind of seemed pointless. It was just, I mean, I kind of loved being there and just thought, well, I'd just hang out with everybody there for the week and be as much fun as anything else I could do. And so, for the next three days, I kind of went up and down, you know, I'd feel kind of disillusioned, but then I'd hear some little teaching, and think, oh, that sounds pretty interesting, and then I'd kind of do it, and I'd feel pretty good for a while, and 12 hours later, I'm like, geez, I do not know what is going on at all, this is, I'm like totally confused, I'm lost, I have no idea, and then, and then I hear something, else. oh, okay, okay, makes sense, <laughs> So I was going up and down, and so on Wednesday evening, I'm kind of in a disillusioned state again, and I go to the Wednesday evening talk, 
I had just listened to the tape of his talk a couple of days ago. I I hadn't remembered anything from that night. The only thing I remembered when I sat down to meditate was kind of feeling, you know, a little spark of interest of, uh, take a look at something. I can do that. So that's all I remember, actually. But actually, when I went back and listened to it, the things he was saying that night was exactly what I did in that meditation. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know it. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was, this is different phrases I picked out from the talk. He says, we need to surrender our concepts about the world so we can see the unvarnished or naked truth. Because the world appears to us as we think it is. So notice when the mind starts to tell us what to think and just let it go. So I just sat down in meditation. I really don't know what happened. It's just... I was there, and I had this image of my uh, of myself in my mind, you know, kind of like this little figure sitting there in meditation. And all of a sudden, it just it was like a sand figure, and it just just totally dissolved. And so I was I was just there, and it was it was just like this vast spaciousness is all it was there. But visually, it was almost kind of like a night sky or something, with little dots of white uh, light or whatever. But um, what I clearly saw was that this was just a concept. I had this concept in my mind, and all of a sudden, there's nothing. And it was not, like there's no emotion there. It was just like a fact that there was no self there. There's no body there. And there, was, there was no mind there. There was no heart there. You know, been doing this retreat on the heart. I mean, there was nothing there. There was just nothing there. And uh. I guess it was a place of no thought. I mean, because I didn't have any thought that, oh, this is enlightenment. It was just spaciousness. And so the uh, meditation ended, and I got up and walked out. And, and it just, I mean, it didn't seem like anything. It's just like, okay, what did I do now? Time to go to bed again. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was. <laughs> It was the next morning, I was eating breakfast. I'm taking this bite of food, and I'm watching myself chew it. And I swallow it, and all of a sudden, I think, God, that food is going to fall on the floor. There's no body here. <laughs> I looked it up. It didn't fall on the floor. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and there was a, another thing was like, uh, we're saying the precepts started to say the precept, and all of a sudden I was like, how can I talk? There's no body here. How how can I say anything? How can I hear anything? And I was like, just, I was just blown away. I was like, wow. Oh. Thousands of thoughts going through, too. That was the other thing. It was just, thoughts are just turning away. Selfish thoughts, kind thoughts. I mean, just thoughts and thoughts. But the thing was that I had seen that there was nothing there that could create a thought. So I get caught up in these thoughts for a while, but then I think, God, there's nobody here. They're just arising. They're just arising. God, let go of them. So I could always let go of them. It was, it was just a fact that there was no body, so these thoughts couldn't be mine. They were just, I don't know where the hell they came from. <laughs> I still don't know where they came that was on Wednesday night, so for the next three days I was kind of like that. But then I also I started thinking, uh, well, maybe this is enlightenment. There's no self here. I mean, that's kind of all the mystics say. There's no self. It's, uh, so I, I was pretty convinced. That, yeah, this is it. This is. I was enlightened, so uh, I went to talk to Joel. I thought it'd be kind of cute. I was sure that he kind of see that I was enlightened right away. <laughs> so, I was, yeah, I was like saying like, uh, if there's no head, how come I get a headache if I think too much? And uh, some of the little cute things, at least I thought they were kind of cute. <laughs> so Joel starts talking to me kind of seriously and and then he starts telling me this story about Cinder. 
being in the closet, and then you got to go look for Cinder. And I says, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's okay, that's okay. Just keep looking, just keep looking. Let go of those, keep letting go of those thoughts. So. Okay. <laughs> so, actually, that was Saturday. That was Saturday morning. So I went and had some lunch, and I went and uh, had this song that I was going to sing for the closing ceremony up or the wrap-up or whatever. The sharing time, whatever the hell. <laughs> so I wrote this song down. And then I, when I went to one of those, uh, one of the outhouses, bathrooms there by uh, Cloud Mountain, and I sat down to take a pee. And I just started pondering about what Joel had said, and, and I was thinking, how can I lose this? And, you know, this insight or whatever I have about no self, how can I lose that? You know, he's saying that I need to look for something. <laughs> how could I lose this? I, was, I, started, I thought, um, what about if I die? Could I lose it then? And then that was it. I was, I was like, there's nobody to die. I am this consciousness. That was it. That was why you were peeing. No, I, was just... <laughs> oh. <laughs> I want that on record. <laughs> no, I was. I think I was done peeing. <laughs> I was just sitting there pondering, you know, having a relaxing, contemplative moment. <laughs> you were on the can, though. Yeah. <laughs> I was. I was indeed. I was indeed. <laughs> oh, you're going to hear about this. <laughs> Which one was it again? <laughs> no, I better not say. You just go in there and see if you can de- detect which one it is. You just test them both out. Abdullah wasn't in there, was he? <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't there. Uh, and so then it was like just being bathed in the love of God. I and mean, that was kind of the emotion that kind of came in. It was just it was such a sweet, sweet feeling. And so then I went out to, uh, went on a walk. And uh, that's when that poem, the little poem that I wrote down for Joel came to me. And I just loved it when I wrote that down. It just brought tears to my eyes. I mean, I don't know why. I just, it was just, I just loved it. Those words just came. It's like I, I don't know where they came from. They just popped into my mind. That was that, basically. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that happened on the retreat was I had this dream. I was working for uh, Jane Fonda. I was doing some doing some carpentry, and I, <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I was nailing these floorboards into a dictionary. And so I was, you know, trying to figure out what, you know, what could that mean? But eventually, I guess, kind of when I was driving home, it kind of came to me. It was like, work with words was the, seemed to be what it was. And then just a couple of days after I got home from the retreat, all these uh, song lyrics would come to me, especially with Bob Dylan. Actually, he's a pretty spiritual guy, and I don't know, I just had this real connection with him, because I'd be listening to his song, and then the tune to start running through my mind and maybe even some of his lyrics but then all of a sudden I'd come up with this whole this whole song of my own about about whatever so especially in that first like month or two I don't know I probably wrote like 25 songs and they weren't all to Dylan tunes but a lot of them were and there was a few poems and, and so then you know when Joel and I set the date here to give his talk I was listening to uh to Bob's song, uh, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. And uh, all of a sudden this song came to me about I Dreamed I Saw St. Christopher. So I was going <laughs> to... 
I was going to sing that for you. When Joel said, you know, I talked to him about all this stuff coming through. He said, well, as long as it's coming through, then you, there's no reason not to share it. And then I told him what a musical idiot I was. He kind of kindly suggested that maybe I should just leave it as poetry. And <laughs> <laughs> Somebody speaks for experience. <laughs> But I guess I'm I'm not quite ready to let go of the music. It's, poetry always seems more uh, dynamic and lively with music to it, even though my musical talents are limited. So, so okay, yes, yeah, bear with me at least one more time. Okay, so I was just going to sing this song, and then we could uh, take some questions. I don't think you want to. Do you need a horn or a duck? Tom does a duck. You have a count, we can help That's why I'm an idiot. I don't know. I don't even know how to count to it. I dreamed I saw St. Christopher. Alive as you and me, with fiery eyes and red neck, he bowed so I could see. He showed me all there was to show, and then he went away. And I am left to tell the tale. And join the human fray. Arise, 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 we cry. Awake and you will see. The beauty and the majesty that spread in front of thee. Let's sing a song of love, my friend. Let's sing a joyous tune. And you will gaze with wondrous eyes upon a water moon. I dreamed I saw St. Christopher alive as you and I. He told a tale of woefulness and how illusion died. He said he did not mind the weight the world to carry home. So if you're feeling burdened now, no, you do not stand alone. The darkness of a stormy night, the brightness of the dawn, both of them can help you, friend. Just keep on keeping on. So listen to the Holy Ones, listen and be strong, for you will soon be coming home, home where you belong. Any questions? Yeah, have you always been this funny? <laughs> probably not, no. I always had probably a funny streak, but it I was always afraid to to verbalize it maybe. Things seems things seem more humorous now. That's okay. Anna. Um, did you have any um Physical sensations around this time, you know? 
in the time of the retreat? Yeah. No, not that I, not that I recall. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Joel used this construction of being out of the closet. Um, and that makes me think about how it just, I find myself curious how your family deals with it, if at all. Probably a variety of, variety of emotions, a variety of ways. I mean, there's been some difficult times, so I don't know what's the right word. Um, upheavals on the home front, so to speak. <laughs> but for the most part, it's it's gone pretty well. Pretty well sometimes, and a little not so well other times. <laughs> well, um, you mentioned the body and all this, and I'm wondering um, when any of us sit in meditation, we experience times, maybe just a few moments, where we experience ourselves as spaciousness. We don't experience ourselves so much as a body, although we feel bodily sensations. What's the difference between that and and what you experienced at the retreat and what you experience now? How do you experience your body now? Well, I mean, it sounds basically similar. Um, I would guess that you probably still have a sense of your own blind being or something that, that is there that really wasn't there for me. They just totally dissolved. And that was really the only difference. And now, I mean, now it's... I don't know. It's, it's kind of not something I think about a lot. It's kind of like what Joel always says. You don't have to think that you're not a dog because... <laughs> <laughs> because you, you just know it. It's just the fact of your life. So it's not something you think about all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's like our... Self is always threatening to come into being. It's like it's always arising, but it uh, doesn't last. I mean, it's just it's just something that's arising, and it goes where everything else goes. It arises. Did you have a question? I had one. I guess I wanted to go back to Vip's thing. Need to say some uh, something positive about my family, <laughs> but uh, Joe kind of sacrificed her life a lot for me because um, just in terms of you know when I started the path, or kind of the place I was at, you know, kind of um, being stymied, not knowing what to do. So I didn't. I wasn't in a place where I was making very much money and and uh, didn't think I needed to make much money. And, and so she made a lot of sacrifices for me, for our relationship, and that I never really appreciated as much as I should have until, until lately. So, I mean, that's, that's a big, big part of it also. I mean, it's, it's like what I said at the... Uh, when I was singing that song at the Christmas party, singing this love song to her, that uh, I had never been able to love her before completely because I was always afraid of losing her. And so all of a sudden that, you know, that's the other thing, the other big thing is there's no fear there. And then the fear of death is gone because there's nobody to die. And so there's no fear of losing anything. And so all of a sudden you can just be there with somebody else in a way that you never really were able to be with them before. You never mentioned um, losing your job. I remember on your housewarming you said losing your job was potentially the most drastic thing that you thought could happen. And it turned out to be so positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just another. It was another piece. I mean, there's all a lot of little pieces like that. Of yeah, another blow to my arrogance. I mean, it was like I had seniority over 
almost everybody there, but yet they cut me. I mean, they laid me off of all these other people. So obviously they picked and chosen who they wanted to keep and who they wanted to let go. And I was obviously out the door because I wasn't wasn't doing the job the way they wanted it. So that was that was devastating. But also it was freeing. I mean, it's like all of a sudden you're thrown out into this big space and you can do anything or potentially you can do anything. It's like you don't you don't have to go to work every day. You see what's see what's going to happen. So I decided to build a house. <laughs> that, that was a great experience. I love, I love building a house. <clears throat> Question was, um, were you at that kind of pointless place prior to the retreat, or did that just sort of suddenly happen on the retreat, I, uh, in terms of your path? I think it mostly happened just at the retreat. So you moved from pointless on Sunday into some kind of confusion. It seemed to be the basic theme. Well, kind of the pointlessness and the confusion were kind of all the same thing. Yeah. Um, did you have you seen any patterns here? I mean, like anything leading up to the retreat or? Oh, I wrote a song to a Dylan tune in like the day before the retreat. <laughs> that was like a foreshadowing. <laughs> but, uh, not, I mean, there have been other retreats where I've had, you know, experience of, uh, kind of my, my head disappeared one time. That was like four or five years ago. I was, we were just focusing on, uh, watching sensations. I was watching a sensation in the back of my head. All of a sudden, the sensation disappeared, and and so did my head. <laughs> there was just space, space there. It was just and so that was a similar kind of thing because it was just, I mean, it was just a fact. It was like there was no head there. There was other, you know, insights along the way. I mean, you know, like nothing directly that that's like the most direct one. I remember just one time I just kind of fell into this place where it was kind of really blissful and but I really didn't know what was going on and I was uh, kind of enjoying myself with all these uh, looking at all these uh, koans kind of laughing at these koans and, but then I fell out of this place and and I talked to Joel and he said well you're having too much fun there you need to look <laughs> look at what's going on so that's always a good thing to do, is to keep looking. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of what's going on, I have kind of a science question. Um, we're all sacred scientists here, after all. So, uh, but maybe I'd pose this not only to you, but also to Joel and Todd and anybody else who has an observation. Um, you know, science likes to. Uh, identify trends and look at and chart things and graph things and stuff. And if we were to take, uh, let's say, beginning with Andrea's awakening in a cloud mountain, and I think it was 1998. And if we were to plot these things, each one of these has, you know, the shift has occurred up a cloud mountain during a retreat. In the fall. In the fall. Okay. <laughs> no, Andrea was spring. Um, <coughs> Andrea was spring. Uh, no. 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 Tom Kirsko was spring. We talked about that. Andrea anyway, wasn't spring? <coughs> no. Anyway, minor point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, uh, if you graph the awakening of Joel's students, four of them now, um, against time, there's a phenomenon that as any scientist would call acceleration. And uh, the other night we read at our happy hour thing, uh, celebrating a couple birthdays, and I think it was Jack and Janet uh, said a, a beautiful metaphorical word. They said it's like pop, it's going to be like popcorn. <laughs> uh, and I know Joel, for one, hates to hates to 
to uh, get self-consciously prophetic or anything about this stuff, but I would just like to hear, do you guys have any sense of, of what's going on with this sangha? I mean, it's pretty, it's it's fairly a fecund environment. <laughs> I will make a prediction of when the next person's going to wake up. It's going to be the fall of 1963. <laughs> <laughs> John F. Kennedy, it sounds like this. <laughs> Did anybody else want to respond to that? Well, I had a dream back the August before fall a year ago, I had a dream that everyone at the center was awake. <laughs> and then I went on my retreat, and after that retreat, I realized it was true. <laughs> Your dream came true. Yeah. I dreamed once when I was the bell ringer that um, I went to wake everybody up, and they were already awake. <laughs> wow. Very good. So you've got a permanent yeah. job as a bell Another happy hour question. We picked around last Friday. What is your middle name? Fred. Then what's your first name? John. Freddie. Oh, okay. Okay. We were trying to. Oh, that Damien song? (laughs) Well, I I thought about that too. It was like. (laughs) It's my. I think it's my address that matches it. Yeah, I knew there was something. Bennett has two N's and two T's. Bennett Creek has two Creek has two E's. Cottage Grove has two T's. Wow. Kim. I'm gonna have to move to Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> This, uh, this thing that, that happened to you on our treat, uh, which is the reason you're standing up here, would you say it's um, would you say it was more of a result of uh, of things that you did in your life, um, spiritual practices that you chose to take up, or or uh, attitudes or, or whatever, or just something that happened to you? Well, kind of both actually, but it's uh, actually I thought about that as like. There's nothing to teach, really, and so there's, there's never any anything that happens like that isn't a result of any teaching. But yet, if if I hadn't listened to all the teachings, I'd still be lost in delusion somewhere, and uh, it would never would have happened to me. So, I mean, it's a mystery. I mean, I don't know how this happens or why it happens. And I mean, I, all I know is like I was on this search and this, this was a place where I was sure I was going to find my answer. But I, when the point when I kind of gave up searching is kind of when I found the answer. So. What's that? This is kind of close to that. Uh, in Joel's talk on Sunday, he, he, was, uh, he quoted something from uh, St. John of the Cross that it sort of sounded like uh, awakening is not something that happens to you, that awakening is God awakening in your whatever. Does, does that, can you make sense out of that? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else. There's nothing else there but God, or I mean, there's no. You can't put a word on it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. nothing. I mean, it's the nothing. There's no, there's no God. I mean, there's no God there. There's no. There's nothing there. <laughs> That's what it is. It's nothing. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's nothing to wake up, and there's. Nothing to be lost and be nothing to be asleep. I could never figure that out before. Nothing to figure out. Exactly. 
Yeah. What difference has it made? What difference has it made? Well, it's one of those things, you know, that another paradox. I mean, everything exactly the same and everything is totally different. Because even the same kind of things arise, you know, same kind of neurotic thoughts arise. And sometimes I'll look at them and say, what is that doing? That's enlightenment? <laughs> but that's the point. I mean, no, there's no thing that is enlightenment. It's just whatever arises is enlightenment. Only, and then you know that there's nobody there that causes things to arise or needs to worry about things or do anything about anything that arises. So in that sense, everything is totally different. Does that answer your question? Alan. How do you know that you're Fred? I'm not Fred. <laughs> well, I am Fred and I'm not Fred. I mean, it's just a label. I don't know what I am, yet I'm still Fred. It doesn't have, really have an answer. I mean, I mean, you can answer it in any number of ways. I mean, obviously I'm Fred. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously Fred doesn't exist. Keep <laughs> um, I know you said already earlier that you don't know still where those thoughts come from, but I get the impression that when you see your neurotic thoughts, <clears throat> they're still the same familiar pattern of thought that you had prior to awakening, sort of familiar. Yeah. So it's like, I, I think Joel one time said, you know, it's like the ceiling fan keeps, keeps turning. Um, I'm just trying to get some sort of I know we can't figure things out mentally, but what is that? You know, even once you realize there's no self, the same pattern of neurotic thinking will continue to spin. It's so mystifying. You'd think that would go away too. Yeah, that's that weird. Totally amazed me that it was totally. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> just so strange to me. It's it's conditioning. What what food do you like? What's your favorite food? Oh. Macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Macaroni and cheese. So why do you like macaroni and cheese? Comfort food. <laughs> no, because you grew up in this culture where they serve macaroni and cheese, and your family served macaroni and cheese and all that. And if you grew up in another culture, they might hate macaroni and cheese because they weren't conditioned to like it. And so if you wake up, you're still going to be conditioned to like macaroni and cheese. That's not going to go away. It's just conditioning. So it's, all it's a, that would melt away too with the self. Well, if you want all the conditioning to melt away, you really would end up catatonic. You could speak English. <laughs> yeah, I mean, true. English is a condition. You learn the English language, it's conditioning. Uh -huh. So if all your conditioning dissolved on awakening, I mean, you know, you wouldn't be able to speak. You wouldn't know how to use a knife and fork. I mean, you know, <laughs> you'd be worse off than, than uh, George. At least George knows what's going on, even if he can't do it, but you wouldn't even know, you know. So yeah. it's not it's not the conditioning that's the problem. It's self-centered conditioning. I keep trying to make that point. Self-centered conditioning, not just pure conditioning. Mm. And that means there's a self in the conditioning. Some conditioning does drop away. If it was just totally based on illusion of self, then just you take away the center of it, it just you know, it just falls away. But not all conditioning falls away and you wouldn't want it to. That's like you know, actors and actresses they have to rehearse to learn their parts to get up on stage to put on a good performance. That's conditioning. They condition themselves so that they can do their performance. Like the conditioning that you had Fred of always being afraid of losing someone. That would be a self-referencing condition, and now that's gone when the self dissolved, right? Mm -hmm. So now if you imagine Joe dying, what do you experience? Or have you, you know, thought about, played with that in your imagination? Okay, what would that feel like now? I mean, you'd be sad, but mm. how is it different? Well, the difference is that the... I mean, you know that nobody is the alive anyway. It sounds crazy, but but we're all just consciousness. We're all just the divine. And so if I lose Joe or any family member, I mean, that's very, very sad. There'd be a lot of sadness there. 
you're not quite so caught up in the whole in the whole drama. And the other thing I want to say about um, the question you talk about conditioning. The one thing that I've noticed is that um, you're, you know, you can, it's, it's, you have more clarity, so you can see all your conditioning, and it's just easier to let go of it if you, I mean, some of it you don't want to let go of. I mean, you're happy with the way things are going. You like this conditioning, but some things just aren't working for you or people you interact with, and so it's like, okay, doesn't seem to be making anybody happy around me when I do this or whatever, so well, I better try something else. <clears throat> so you're just freer to to change change your behaviors. Right? Maybe now you would make a good therapist. <laughs> yeah, I said I thought I I thought I would. Yeah. Wow, but I'm not sure. We've got other plans for him. Oh. <laughs> close. It's a close profession. <laughs> Can we just check the time here? Oh, yes, 9.03. So why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and anybody wants to hang out and ask... Uh, conditioning. Uh, what? Dead the morning. Oh, the morning, yes. That's <laughs> it's also the donkey mind that knows it's after 9 o'clock, so it's 9.03. Right, three minutes past your bedtime. That's right. <laughs> Let's uh, thank you, Frank, for opening up. And uh, even when you're enlightened, it's not easy to get up the first time in front of a whole bunch of people and split your guts out. So. <laughs>